Just as the mood of the country is low, so too it was for those two people on the road to Emmaus that we've just heard about. But alongside sadness, I think they were probably feeling perhaps some confusion and disappointment as well. That weekend, they'd seen their friend betrayed. He'd been cruelly beaten and mocked, subjected to a sham trial by Herod and the chief priests and Pilate. He was crucified and buried. Things hadn't turned out as they hoped they would. Their hopes have been dashed. Disappointment is something we all know in our lives from time to time. Sometimes those disappointments can be over something relatively trivial. You know, perhaps the sandwich you bought from Marks and Spencers for your lunch just doesn't lead up to expectations. Maybe the holiday accommodation you booked just doesn't resemble what you saw in the advert. Or the film you've chosen to watch has lost you after the first five minutes. I can relate to all of those. But sometimes disappointments can hurt more deeply, particularly when we've invested our hopes in another person who's let us down. Maybe a friend or family member just hasn't been there for you when you needed them to be. The treatment that a doctor has given you hasn't worked out as you hoped it would. Or maybe the children have done something that disappoints you. Again, I can think of instances in my life to which all apply. It is this deep disappointment that seems to be overshadowing the two figures on the Emmaus Road. Roads feature a lot in Luke's Gospel. The Good Samaritan helps a traveller on the road. The prodigal son is welcomed home by his father on the road. And in Acts, which is also written by Luke, Paul has his conversion on the Damascus Road. Roads seem to reflect a journey of faith and significant moments on that journey. These two are on the road because they've waited until the third day after Jesus' death, but they haven't seen anything happen and they've lost heart, so they walk away. It wasn't so for the women, of course. They'd gone to anoint Jesus' body with spices, only to be confronted by an angel who asked them why they were seeking the living among the dead and telling them he has risen. But none of them had believed the women because as they say in verse 11, their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter too had gone to the empty tomb, but they don't seem to believe him either. So these two leave Jerusalem and journey to Emmaus. Perhaps they're going back home to their old lives, the lives they'd led before they met Jesus, going back to old patterns of behavior, all talk of the kingdom of God, a painful memory. We don't know for sure who these two people were. One was named in verse 18 as Cleopas, and some suggest that this is the same person who in John chapter 19 and verse 25 is named as Clopas, 
the husband of one of the Marys who stood at the foot of Jesus' cross. So this couple on the road may be Clopas and his wife, but others think it's two men on the road. Whoever they are, they're not any of the 11 disciples that were left, but surely part of a larger group who were following Jesus. And maybe it doesn't matter who they were. Luke doesn't name the women who went to the tomb either. And maybe this is deliberate. The two on the road are any disciples. They are you and me. Fiona spoke last week about how the fact that women are recorded as the first witnesses to the resurrection makes the account more and not less believable. Because women had low social standing in those days. They couldn't legally give evidence in a court of law. So if this account were made up, the authors would never have chosen women as the first witnesses. And similarly here, Jesus appears not in the city before influential people, but to two unknown individuals who are travelling on an obscure road out of, the, out of Jerusalem. We don't know precisely where Emmaus was. There's no archaeological evidence for it. But perhaps this is typical of Jesus. He is, after all, the one who was born not in a palace but in a manger, who sought out not the religious authorities of the day, but tax collectors, sinners, and fishermen. So Jesus, we learn, is most likely to turn up where we least expect him to be. And maybe that raises the question, where do we least expect him to turn up? But here, for two people traveling on the road out of the city, who are overwhelmed with disappointment and sadness, he comes shining through. Where there is hope, where there is sadness and despair, he brings hope and understanding. And these truths are every bit as relevant for us today as they were then. Sometimes for us, when situations leave us feeling confused, bewildered and sad, when God's promises seem to be so hard to hold on to, it's tempting to do as these two did and walk away. We're told in verses 14 and 15 that these two were talking and discussing what had happened in Jerusalem. Particularly that word for discussing in the original Greek conveys the idea of a debate, a, a debate or a dispute. These two were arguing, arguing about what had happened to Jesus and what it all meant. And it's as they were arguing about Jesus that he himself walked along with them. And it might seem strange to us that they were arguing about Jesus but don't recognize him when he joins them. But the reason comes in verse 16. They were kept from recognizing him. The original Greek is a passive verb and translated literally it says something like the eyes of them were held not to know him. So this isn't about their dullness or their stupidity. It's God himself who is preventing them from recognizing Jesus 
at this point. Why? Well, we're not told. But perhaps they had something to learn about faith first. It may be that if Jesus had let them see who he was straight away, they would have been so astounded that they wouldn't have heard anything else he said after that. And maybe there are some important truths that Jesus wants them and us to hear. And what follows is perhaps the most ironic question in the whole of Scripture. After Jesus asks them, what were you discussing? Cleopas replies, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Come on, where have you been? News of Jesus' trial and execution and the claims he'd made were streaming all over their equivalent of Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Do you not know? Perhaps the most monumental example of opening your mouth and putting your foot right in it. Something that Prince Philip was also prone to. Something we've all done at some point in our lives. My son, who works for house removals at the moment, came home the other day and told me that he asked an elderly lady where she wanted him to put a table. Which table, he asked. And before Mouth had engaged with, with Brain, he replied, the old, ugly one. <laughs> Honestly, no hope. One commentator I read looked back on, was wondering how Cleopas looked back on this event in eternity. And he must have said to himself, did I really say that? Did I look the crucified Jesus in the eye and ask him if he was the only one who didn't know what had happened in Jerusalem? But Jesus, gracious as ever, just asks them what things? And what follows is a summary of all the events that had taken place. And their disappointment comes to the fore in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, had hoped, past tense. We invested our hopes in this Jesus, but he was not the one we hoped he would be. And perhaps this is a comforting picture for us. Jesus walking alongside those despondent disciples, sharing their troubles, so we can know that when we walk our own Emmaus road, when disappointment, doubt and despair fill our lives, Jesus is also walking beside us, the unseen stranger, listening to our conversations and revealing himself to us. And then in response, he outlines for them the meaning and significance of his own death starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. No doubt he reminded them of the passages in Isaiah chapters 52 to 54 that speak of a suffering servant, of how the whole of the Old Testament points to a Messiah who would one day save Israel by suffering on its behalf, how it was necessary for him to suffer, to die and rise again. It's not that they hadn't read their Bibles, but their idea of what the Messiah would be like was clouded by their own preconceptions. 
someone who would come with glory and power and free them from Roman rule. But he shows them how hundreds of prophecies written by many different people over hundreds of years were all fulfilled in him. He helped them to see that the salvation that they were looking for came not by military might, but by sacrifice. Many people today find the Old Testament difficult to understand or irrelevant even. But Jesus tells us here that the whole of the Old Testament points to him and that we cannot properly understand the New Testament without it. And the story takes a twist at this point. As they approach their destination, Jesus seems to continue walking but they exhort him to stay with them. They offer hospitality to this stranger and a meal is served. And meals are another strong focus in Luke's gospel. He lists some 10 different meals at which Jesus ate with tax collectors, with sinners, with the Pharisees and with his disciples and friends. No doubt Cleopas and his companion had eaten with him before as well. And then on this occasion, it is as he takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it and gives it to them, that the scales fall from their eyes and they are opened. And again, this is a passive verb. Just as God had kept their eyes from seeing Jesus for who he was before, and it's not down to their dullness or their stupidity. So now he allows them to recognize Jesus and it's not down to their own insight, it's down to God. So too with us. When we see Jesus for who he is, it is because of the work of the Holy Spirit moving in us. For Cleopas and his companion, it is the moment that he disappears from their sight but as for us, as for them, he has not gone. He can still be, be seen by those who have the eyes of faith. And look at what they say to each other at this point. Were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Have you ever felt the feeling of your heart burning within you as you worship, as you experience prayer, as you listen to teaching, as you read your Bible, as you take bread and when we are allowed to, wine? Have you felt that stirring in your soul as you look out at nature, as you gaze upon the stars in the night sky, as you listen to music or poetry, as you look on a newborn baby? I can think of many times that my heart has been moved by worship here as it was indeed this morning. And of times when, during prayer ministry with people who didn't know me, they've said something, disclosed something, that they could not possibly have known unless it were God speaking through them. These stirrings in your heart are not just figments of your imagination. They are God, through his Holy Spirit, saying something to you. Something you need to notice, to pay attention to, 
and to act on. So if you feel that, stay in the moment. Don't be in a hurry to rush on and just discount it as an odd feeling. Pay attention, listen and act on it. And that's just what Cleopas and his friend do. They return to Jerusalem to the eleven and tell them what has happened. And with hearts not full of despair and disappointment, but of joy, they confirm the account of the women and of Peter earlier that day. So what can we learn from this? One thing this tells us is that it is true that Jesus is there with us when we least expect to find him in our lives, in sorrow, in sadness, in our running away and in our disappointment. So if this is you this morning, don't walk away from Jesus, walk with him. Know that he walks with you, alongside you, that he listens to your conversations and that he longs to reveal himself to you. Take time to be with him, to talk to him, to listen to him, because it is also true that Jesus is present where we most expect to find him, in the scriptures, in the sacraments, and in our fellowship with each other. When you find yourself on the road to Emmaus, don't give up hope, even though it can be a long and discouraging journey. And if you know someone who is traveling that road, then walk alongside that person for a while. Do not doubt that the Lord will walk with you as well, no matter who you are or where you're going. Cleopas and his friend, whoever they were, had disbelieved the women. They had disbelieved the evidence of scripture. They had disbelieved Peter and they had left Jerusalem with heavy hearts. After recognizing Jesus through the scriptures and through the breaking of bread, they return with hearts full of joy. The story of the Emmaus Road then is a story of disappointment and doubt, a story of finding Jesus in the scriptures and in the sacraments, a story of deep faith and joy in telling others of the good news of the risen Christ. It's a story for each one of us and of each one of us. A story that assures us that the promises of God are sure and certain, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Walk beside us, risen Jesus, as we walk our own Emmaus roads. Walk with us in our confusion, our questions and our disappointments. Walk with us in the guise of the stranger or of a fellow traveller. Open our eyes to your presence through the Bible and through the bread of wine and open our hearts to receive your peace and love. Amen.